Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Blockhead listeners, welcome to a new edition of the podcast. I hope the season is treating you well so far. Whatever you celebrate, uh, find something to celebrate these days. Uh, it's it's not easy to do, but let's do our best, right? Uh, try to bring some joy to the season in whatever way possible. So bringing joy to you, hopefully, today, we have a big Peanuts discussion between myself and Simon Beecroft. It's part two of my conversation with the author of the Peanuts book, a visual history of the iconic comic strip published just just published by DK Publishing and out at bookstores everywhere just in time for the holiday season. So if you're out looking for a gift for that Peanuts-loving family member or friend, why not pick up the Peanuts book? I think that whomever receives it will be quite, quite thrilled with it, quite happy with it. It's a very nice book indeed. So Simon and I are in the middle of a conversation that has gone from peanuts and all over the place, and now it's coming back to peanuts again. So sit back. I hope you'll enjoy the next half hour or so with uh, Simon Beecroft and myself talking about peanuts and Charlie Brown and Linus, Lucy, Snoopy too. And uh, actually, we don't talk about Snoopy. That's funny. How can you talk about peanuts and not talk about Snoopy? Well, we did. (laughs) We did. We talked about other things, so but it's uh, primarily Peanuts related, so I hope you'll get into it. I hope you'll enjoy it. So uh, without further ado, Simon B. Croft and myself in conversation. I think one of the things that's wonderful about a, an achievement like what Schultz did with Peanuts is this meeting uh, is the ideal medium for the ideal artist, you know, finding that it's you. And this is what I try to do with students all the time is finding that place. That's you. That's nobody else where you can enable yourself and your work to be entirely your own and it can grow and flower, you know, in a way that's fulfilling mm-hmm. and, and it's fulfills whoever you are as a person, you know what I mean? That, that realizes somehow that, that thing within you that's unique and special and different from others. And I think in, in something like Schultz and Peanuts, you have this extraordinary moment where this artist found the absolutely perfect, the absolute perfect vehicle for his talents and, um, you know, the, the perfect characters. And this is why I was, we were talking about, you know, the name of Linus and how fortuitous it was that when he did that drawing and he showed it to his colleague Linus and he decided to name it Linus, really there was something more at work there than just happenstance. Um, Mm. There was a sense of what's right for Mm. what he was doing and what he hoped for it to be eventually. Yeah, he was quite decisive, I think, wasn't he? He kind of knew his own mind um he was just he was quiet he was quietly determined um he he could come over as somebody who was very mild to the point of uh you know being 
sort of relatively passive. But I think that was to some extent a kind of cover for not an aggressive um, kind of attitude of of ambition, but certainly he was quietly, you know, he was he could dig his heels in. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was quite stubborn. He could be quite stubborn, I'm sure. Um, But I think he just he knew. And as you say, I think he knew when something was right. He didn't need to check with anybody. He didn't need to, um, you know, I suppose you couldn't he couldn't have done that number of strips um, consistently over those, you know, 50 um, years without you know, being that kind of person who who was able to just make the right call time and time again, not go around the houses, you know, wondering whether what he was doing was the right thing and asking people and um, yeah. I, yeah, I think it was it was this sense, this confidence mm. and this sense of, you know, he was self-directed and he knew what was right for what he was doing which you mentioned in the book, you know, the first special, the first television special, the mm. whole idea of Linus, you know, reading from the Bible uh, to talk about what Christmas really means. And whether you're Christian or not, you know, I think you can be affected by what Linus says there uh, because it seems so sincere, you know. Sincere, yeah, and yeah. Schultz knew that that was, you know, executives at the, at the, uh, and just imagine, right. This is your first, this is what 1965. He's already very successful, but it's still just a comic strip. He's, this is his chance to bring it to a wider audience on television. And these network executives say to you, well, we think you need to cut that from the show because we're nervous about it. Uh, we, we don't want to, uh, promote religion on television, etc." And so, you know, that really probably shouldn't be part of the show. Now, imagine, right, being in that situation and saying, no, this is what I think is necessary and we're going to do it. You know, I mean, I, I don't I can't imagine that I'd be in that situation as, as stubborn as I can be about my own stuff. Well, maybe I would have. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of, I think, confidence in what you're doing. No, to be exactly. Able to say that. Yeah. Exactly. Confidence, determination, belief, self, you know, self-belief. Um, Vision. And, but also but also a kind of, <clears throat> I suppose he read the mood, mm-hmm. you know, better than anybody else in the room. Um, because, you know, his, history proved him to be right. When, that, when it was aired, the, the nation was completely riveted yeah. um, and moved. And it totally worked and has worked, you know, pretty much every year when people rediscover it every year since then. It's stood the test of time. Absolutely. Um, so I think he he but he must have had some kind of instinct that um, people would accept or want to hear this message. You know, it, it was it was accept. It was, the, you know, the time was right to yeah. say it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And interesting post-World War Two, where, yeah. you know, you had articles, you know, is God dead on the cover of Time magazine and those kinds of things. Yeah. You know, it was a period when people questioned and, I, you know, I'm not a religious person, but it, it was a period of time when people questioned faith a lot because mm. of what they'd been through in World War Two. Um, you know, the results of that, the, the you know, nuclear age all of that and and i think it was a time where where faith and hope were being questioned and here comes this 
overt statement uh, of, of of faith, of hope and faith, and uh, really quite brave in a lot of ways to do something like that. But also, I mean, it, he he cast it in in the light of uh, anti-commercialism yeah. as well, didn't he? So that resonated too. So I think it, it wasn't that it wasn't just an entirely gratuitous um, insertion of uh, religious, you know, messaging into the show. It was this kind of, it was the foundational, you know, view that that Linus had that that was guiding him towards this idea of understanding that Christmas was getting quite commercialised, the world was getting quite, you know, and I suppose that maybe that's the other element that, you know, makes it so brave, the fact that it was this, you know, he would, the, the sponsors were um, Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, yeah. and then yeah. he, here's Schultz making his special kind of about Christmas being overly commercialised. Yeah, it, it's really kind of, I mean, there's so many things that come to mind when, when we talk about this issue, um, because at the same time that he's talking about, well, one, he's questioning, you know, the the idea that that f- the free market and f- capitalism are the be all and end all that there's more to life than just that and that commercialism has this kind of this quality that erodes you know meaning and experience in a way and and diminishes you know something like the experience of a religious holiday or something of that nature and and at the same time as you say his sponsor is this worldwide brand right that's everywhere and going farther right and and at the same time peanuts is becoming this huge licensed monster uh in and of its commercialized monster in and of itself which i know he was always very careful about but you know, I think it it exploded in a way that I think he must have been surprising to even him. The commercialization of, of Peanuts itself just became enormous. And um, so in a sense, it's also a comment about where the strip was in the world at that time. And, and kind of an interesting comment to go back to. As time went on, because you could replace Christmas with peanuts, you know, and say uh, peanuts is getting too commercialized. And this is what it's really about. And I think it always comes back to the comic strip. You know, this this little thing that was done on paper and printed in newspapers. That's what what it was about. It wasn't about this other stuff. You know, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought about that. Well, yeah. I hadn't either until I we just started talking. <laughs> talking about it but it really is an interesting moment where the strip is you know just poised to become this worldwide phenomenon and schultz is talking about the real meaning of uh, in this case a holiday but the real meaning of of a life a l- real meaning of an endeavor of his mm-hmm. endeavor uh what it's really about yeah because to- I mean, he, he definitely had a kind of somewhat of a tension at the beginning particularly around the whole merchandising licensing aspect of peanuts he wanted to do it you know he wanted to be cautious he wanted to be very involved he wanted to do it right he wanted quality he he yeah um so yes that's it's so interesting that i I suppose you could see it almost like as that he was making a um a comment to himself he was directing that special somewhat at himself yeah i mean i i'd never really made that connection before but i really think it's 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 something worth examining you know 
um, because as we've we've been discussing, the strip is if you want to know about Charles Schultz, you know, you read his work. And I consider those early specials in particular part of, of, of his work. The later ones aren't so crucial to me and don't feel quite as crucial. But the, these certainly yeah. the first couple of them feel very crucial yeah. and yeah. Uh, particularly, you know, uh, the Christmas special. Yeah. And um, I think there is something there. And there's something about his life in general. I think he's always kind of having a dialogue with himself, you know, about one thing or another. Maybe Lucy, maybe Lucy, you know, we're thinking that Lucy is his first wife, Joyce, maybe, or the, her voice. And maybe so. But maybe Lucy is also Charles Schultz talking to himself, you know. Uh, I mean, there is that period of time when you're in your 30s, uh, 20s, late 20s and 30s and beginning to set out in the world where there are all these tensions, I think, on you that are, you know, there are different kinds of tensions as you grow older. But in those early years, they seem, I think, much more, I don't know about in your own situation, but they seem so much more um, pressing in a sense that in my 20s and 30s, I didn't really, because I didn't know it was going to happen. Life felt very precarious. They, the tensions seem so much more, I don't know, um, dangerous in a way. And maybe that added to Lucy. I don't know, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you could see Lucy in a number of different ways, of course. And I, I think one, you know, one way is we've mentioned is, is you know, the, the similarities to some extent uh, or the parallels with his first wife. The other way is, as you as you're suggesting now, there's a element of Schultz in Lucy, certainly. And I think perhaps, I mean, you know, in the same way that you can see all the characters as being somewhat there's there's different sides to Schultz in each of the characters and we you know there's Schroeder focused mm -hmm. on his art in the same way that yeah. he's had that super focus on his art there was Charlie Brown we all know about the the parallel yeah. and Linus of course is more his more philosophical side but then Lucy it's a hard it's a more of a stretch but I think he I've, I'm feeling like he has said something in interviews about Lucy um you know, represents the side of him that can say kind of mean things, be a little, <laughs> little sarcastic, spiteful. I can't quite hear that in, I mean, Schultz being like that, but I think, I think, I think he said it. And then I think the other side of Lucy, um, uh, what's the other side I'm going to say? There's one other side I was thinking about her, that she, oh, there's, there's an interview that he, he did in, I think, in the 60s, where he, he was just talking literally about the dynamic between an older sister and a younger brother. Um, you know, much, a much simpler way of explaining Lucy that, that he, just, he just was thinking about how an older sister can, can off, or an older sibling can often yeah. be quite mean to the younger one. They kind of like, they can be a bit bullying, picking on them, making them feel a bit small. You know, so there's that dynamic with between her and and Linus, um, and he yeah. also very aware of the fact that, or he was also very aware that if it's a if it's an older sister bullying in inverted commas, but uh, bullying uh, a younger brother, there's something. I think he felt there's something kind of more funny about that, where you have a girl being tough to a boy in in a way which is perhaps not as funny if it's a boy older boy picking on a younger girl i think mm -hmm. he's he got that dynamic he understood that if he does it that way around you know people will accept it more it's more surprising it's more you know 
it's more fun. I, I, I completely agree. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, if it had been, you couldn't have Linus is the older brother picking on, uh, first of all, an older brother picking on siblings is so common. It's such a cliche, you know, whether they're a sister or a brother, the older brother picking on them is just, it's something you see everywhere all the time. So he takes it and he reverses it. And it's the older sibling is the girl and she is the bully in the family in a way. And, uh, and, and that is what makes it unique and surprising and funny at first, because that's not, that is not the cliche. It's not what you see culture all the time. You know, um, it's rare that you see that kind of thing in Mm. the culture of that time of that time. Um, then at the same time that Lucy's like that, there's also how rich the character is. There is also the part of Lucy that, you know, goes out at the end of uh, the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, and ta- finds her brother freezing in the pumpkin patch and brings yeah. him home and puts it, puts him to bed, you know? I mean, uh, mm. so there's that quality of the character, too. She was, Schultz is saying she's human, too, you know? She, she loves at the same time <laughs> that... Uh, she threatens Linus with violence. <laughs> she, yeah. she also wants to keep him around, you know. That's um, one of the things I, that I think I love about the strip the most is that he doesn't ever go too far. He pulls back. He shows yeah. another side to the characters. They're not one-dimensional. They don't always... Yes, there's that lovely familiarity where we do expect certain characters to react in certain ways. That's enjoyable to a degree. I mean to a large degree but then there's he's not afraid of having a character having a character show another side to them and i mm-hmm. i love that i really do i think that's great i also love there's i just i just have to mention because i really love this quote that gene schultz said mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. lucy we've got it in the book oh, um, yes i've got yeah. it right do you mind <laughs> if one, i of course I, is lucy a feminist or a jerk can't she be both is that the one that's the one yeah Oh, it's I was, great. Yeah, when I, read that, I was just like, yes, yes, you, that's so you've encapsulated it so perfectly because I was kind of wrestling with this. I wanted to present. I really like Lucy as a character and I wanted to present her in, I guess, as positive a light as I can, understanding that she she really can be quite nasty sometimes in an uncalled for way. I'm oh. always looking for kind of an excuse for it. I'm always looking for her just being like an empowered girl female who's just like you know irritated by how slow all the boys are around her in fact how slow everyone is is around her she's this kind of she's constrained by this you know kind of suburban neighborhood that she's growing up in and she's just I kind of like I really identify with her as a character but I also recognize that she can be just downright kind of nasty and sometimes I'm like I get an intake of breath when I was like like seriously wow that's horrible (laughs) and so so I was really wrestling with kind of how how to present her in the book so I love that quote because it's like thank you thank you Jean Schultz (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely because it it it, what it says is that she's a three-dimensional character and that she has multiple sides to her and and yes at the same time, feminists can be jerks, you know, and <laughs> and they can be great and people can be great. And let's just, you know, accept the idea that she's a person and a person is complex. And she is and Lucy is, you know, for me, 
I mean, there are a number of complex characters in the strip, you know, but for me, uh, I think the strip really starts to take off in the 50s when what happens almost simultaneously is that Lucy is defined and Charlie Brown is defined and they're almost defined in relationship to one another. And from that moment, you know, that in the middle 50s where, you know, we begin to see Lucy as this very self-assured, loud, um, demonstrative character, you know, as you say, somewhat impatient. Um, and Charlie Brown is a kind of, uh, as she would say, wishy-washy kind of loser uh, in, in a sense, although he's more than that, right? Um, but as soon as they begin to find those niches, I think the strip really begins to click and find its mature voice, which is somewhere around maybe 55, 54, somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, and I think from that moment on, Lucy, for me, the strongest era of the strip, again, I'm showing my age, but um, I think a lot of people say this is, again, another cliche, but the the mid-50s to, you know, 1972 or so, um, for me, that that period is the strongest period of the strip. And it's in that period where Lucy and Charlie Brown are most clearly defined in opposition to one another. Yeah. And and the emphasis on Lu- that relationship and the relationship, is, as you pointed out, of the originals, you know, Linus, Lucy, Charlie Brown, Schroeder, Snoopy, that gang, you know, um, is based in those kinds of very balanced kinds of plays. Another, uh, Schultz has this, as you pointed out in the book, as you say here, um, Schultz has strongly realized non-stereotypical female characters always speak their minds. And as the strip goes on, he develops some very interesting female characters that broaden the strip, but also take it away from that central focus, that central dynamic between Charlie Brown and Lucy that I felt, at least for comic purposes was so crucial um mm. but he goes on to focus on peppermint patty yeah. a lot of peppermint patty and yeah. on marcy and yeah. uh, who are both interesting characters in their own right it almost becomes a different strip to me like a side strip when he starts to focus on on peppermint patty because she's kind of different character and a character that's very complex in her own right you know yeah uh, but very different from lucy yeah, I mean, she, she, um, it's surprising, you know, I suppose how, how late, well, not, not late, but yeah, Peppermint Patty doesn't come in until, you know, the strip's really in its, you know, second uh, decade. When is it? 60, when did she come in? 66, yeah. 66. Um, and then you're right, it's like a second, it's like a second start almost again with the influence, I think, of Peppermint Patty and seeing the other neighborhood. And the yeah. characters associated with that neighborhood and the slightly different, you, 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 you know, I don't think you can put your finger on it exactly, but there's a slightly different feel about that. The other side of the of town kind of yes. thing. Yeah. And I think that you're right. That brings a whole new dimension to the strip. And um, Schultz, I think himself was aware that Peppermint Patty could probably be could probably carry a strip on her own. Oh, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Whereas I think now this is interesting. Now, Lucy may be a much more dominant character and a stronger character in in just presentation. But I think Lucy needs Charlie Brown and and Schroeder and Linus, whereas Peppermint Patty, as you're saying, there's there's a sense that Peppermint Patty 
a lot of peppermint patty strips are just her at the desk at school uh, by herself and this latchkey kid you know left alone a lot uh and maybe with her best friend marcy who uh that relationship kind of interesting too because she's not always friendly to marcy but uh you know there is the, there is a sense that that could have been something entirely on its own peppermint patty kind of exists in a way on her own separate because she's in a different neighborhood and whatnot you know yeah she can she can you can we can see strips as you say of her uh completely separate from the neighborhood well separate from charlie brown but also separate from the the very neighborhood that charlie brown is in we can literally see her existing having a different existence um different school and and you know so yeah she she exactly is is has an independence that lucy doesn't really have yeah Uh, and i do i really do love and i i mean she's such a great she's it's hard. It, I, I can't pick favorite characters. I think it is the ensemble. It's the whole cast together, What you know, working together. But I really love Peppermint Patty so much. Uh-huh. Uh, I find her just so like, you know, just the complexity of her comfort, you know, the fact that she's got that confidence, um, uh-huh. you know, to be herself, but also with that vulnerability that where she, I mean, there's some heartbreaking strips. I'm sure you know them where she, she really, you know, she sees the little red, red-haired girl for the first time, and understand, uh, you know, understands why Charlie Brown is obsessed with her and not, and not with, with mm-hmm. Patty, and she just goes to pieces, doesn't she? And and she's really upset, and you, it's a kind of upset that you don't see in the strip yeah. that much because yeah. people are so stoic in the strip. Charlie Brown, you know, is just famously like he just gets knocked down the whole time and just kind of, you know, sighs and mm-hmm. accepts it in a way. There's an acceptance that you're never really going to get what you want in life. But those strips, I mean, there's a whole different side that he seems to explore with Peppermint Patty, I think. Um, and Marcy, too. There's some really I really love there's some strips where Marcy has like a breakdown pretty much. Um, I think they're in the they may be in the 90s or something, but she like just feels that suddenly she just can't cope with the pressure that's being put on her by her parents at school and she just like uh just kind of comes to charlie brown's house and she splurges that she just can't cope her parents have got her whole life mapped out she needs to get all these a grades she needs to go to college and uh, you know all this kind of stuff and she just collapses with exhaustion and stress and that's really another you know very uh, heartbreaking some heartbreaking moments there oh uh, absolutely yeah, yeah and just kind of she she sleeps in charlie she just sleeps on the sofa on the on the couch in charlie brown's house for a few days just kind of resting and i really love the fact that um sally kind of like she sat on her on her beanbag and she just calls over like we're okay aren't we charlie brown it's much nice it's much easier living in a uh, uh living oh. in a c plus house yes oh my gosh like, yeah. where there's not pressure on us i love those strips thought they were so smart yeah. they are and they point to the pressures that are on children um <laughs> on young girls in particular peppermint patty is always struggling with identity and struggling with the pressures that are put on girls in regard to you know physicality and um and appearance and you know finding herself being comfortable with herself and who she is uh that's a struggle for her at the same time 
she's also and she as you point out you know there's this confidence that she has too when it comes to playing baseball or something similar like that where she knows her team is the best and they're going to outdo charlie brown and his team and you know she's very confident and sometimes myopic in the sense that she's not clear how she's perceived by others uh but it's really interesting you know there's multiple dimensions to that character this is why i say she could you know certainly hold a strip yeah. on her own and i think he said the same thing yeah and, I like and that's all fights, i like how she fights for the right to wear the uh unconventional yeah. uh, school uniform or, or that's right she wears she breaks yeah. the school um codes and she like she's got that kind of she's going to fight the system <laughs> Yeah. And it reminds me, too, because, you know, that's the kind of thing that happened all the time. I mean, uh, growing up, my wife went through similar things, both, you know, in elementary school and then later on when she was working a job uh, in a retail environment uh, in the South where she was expected to, you know, she was being chastised for wearing a skirt that was above the knees and something without sleeves. And my wife was just like, I mean, this was great. I just love this. She put her foot down. She said, the heck with you guys. Your your dress codes are arcane. I'm going to wear what I want to wear. And they said, well, if you're going to wear what you want to wear, then we're going to put you someplace else. And they put her on the loading dock, thinking that she would quit. But, yeah. you know, my wife was and is a tough cookie. And um, she wasn't going to put up with that either. So she was like, hey, I'm happy to go to work in jeans every day. So the heck with you guys. And that, that yeah. kind of thing goes on all the time. Uh, yeah. and hopefully less so than it used to. Um, but peppermint patty is, is, is rare. You know, and I think uh, one of the things that Schultz was sensitive to was the struggles of, of children, the struggles of young people uh, right. you know, in the world. And that certainly seems to be the case here. As much as Peanuts is a strip wherein the children seem to have adult sensibilities and conversations at the same time they're still kids and uh that's one of the things that one of those fine lines that charles schultz walks through the strip that is really quite quite remarkable i i I think that's exactly exactly right and i think i think i do think that's one of the things that i find most impressive about it is that how it embodies a um a viewpoint that is i would say well, I mean, I, I don't know about the times because I didn't live through those times, but it seems to me to be um, all about children uh, being able to or, or struggling to self-express uh, or, or un- understand themselves, discuss themselves, talk in a in a kind of um, reflective way um, and talk quite honestly and openly about things going on in their lives, their emotional lives and and other things like that. Hey listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct reward. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. 
Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. And I feel like that's, that to me, I, I have kids who, my kids, as I said, are, well, they're 15 and 12 now, but I, I feel like that generation and the, the, the you know, generation younger than them are expect that kind of level of discourse. They expect and they are comfortable with talking about these kinds of issues in a way that I'm not sure I was when I was growing up in the sort of 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that he almost he foresaw, I feel like some of the kind of confidence that children, I, I think, in a good way, have now. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps what maybe seemed kind of extraordinary at the time, maybe that was the humour of the strip at the time, was the fact that there were these kids talking in ways that adults at that time talked. But mm-hmm. I would argue that to some extent that things have shifted and children now do talk like that, which it's I know true. it sounds kind of odd, like when the kids get to be around nine, 10, you know, they are, they're incredibly open about diversity issues. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just, I'm just, you know, sometimes kind of really, really, it's very, it's very, um, it makes being a parent a lot easier, actually, if you as a parent are comfortable with um, being able to discuss these issues, because your kids certainly are, or my kids are. That's really Uh, interesting. Yeah. In the 60s, um, when I grew up, uh, it, but there were things you just did not talk about. Mm. Uh, but I think when Schultz was talking about this stuff, it was quite surprising to see that on a newspaper page. Nobody else was really doing what he was doing on the newspaper page. You know, think about the newspaper comics back then. And I mean, now contemporaries of his that went into that arena of discussing you know, personalities and foibles and vulnerability and psychology and feelings of disappointment and alienation. Okay. You know, immediately in my mind, I begin to think of, of uh, among his contemporaries, Jules Pfeiffer, but that came later, you know, uh, or in an alternative newspaper where it, it was more expected, but Schultz was alone on the comics page in doing that kind of stuff. There was really nobody else exploring it, mm. you know? So that's really kind of, I think, an indication, too, of how unique it was for children, unique it was for anybody to be having those kinds of discussions um, out in public because on the public newspaper page, there wasn't anybody else doing no. that. No, certainly not in the mainstream, as you say. Yeah, not in the mainstream. Uh, and, you know, later on, of course, after Schultz, you know, you see it happening a great deal, you know, with strips like uh, Doonesbury and Kathy, yeah. uh, you know, throughout the 70s and then Bloom County. And but when in Schultz's day, it was it was not something that was I'm trying to think of what was on the page, say, in 1955 or 56. And I don't think there was anything mm-hmm. coming close to what Schultz was exploring. It's, I mean, it's inter- I, I, I think the, the other interesting thing is, is just the fact that, I mean, obviously there's no, there's no parents, there's no adult figures yeah. in the strip. And that was great, a great decision, um, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I suppose what that means is that you, he, he necessarily can't have, um, the kids don't have any conflicts 
or there's no apparent there's no focus on conflict between um the kids and their parents so um so you what you kind of what i feel that you read into that is just is just that you know i guess these parents were you know you i get the sense that those the parents of the kids in peanuts were kind of relatively liberal um hands-off kind of parents that's the sort of impression i get they're not constantly calling them in um telling them to to do this clean up do that or whatever they're kind well, of that giving, was, that's oh, quite I, you know that was the way it, it was then though you know yeah, it's true i was when i was saying that i was thinking you, that is exactly right you you were allowed to play out you were expected just to kind of uh, disappear for hours on end and just come back to eat <laughs> yeah exactly and and i think you know my my brother is a, a a parent raising you know two young sons and he struggled rails against this because he's an older father and he he grew up in the um mid to mid 60s and the 70s you know and he struggles against against this idea of constricting children's time and organizing everything so that yeah. they go from one you know uh, endeavor to another endeavor one activity to another and uh, you know, when we were growing up, it was just in the neighborhood. They just let you run free for hours at a time, just show up. And if you didn't show up, you know, maybe there'd be a phone call to another mother to see if you were yeah. there. Or, you know, better yet, my mother would yell out the door, you yeah. know, <laughs> for, for me to come running. But, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, they expected me to sort of find my own way. And, yeah. you know, yeah. and so you did. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, parents' lives. I suppose that you know that is right. The pe- pe- uh, my my uh, my memories of that time were that your your parents had very different lives to your lives. Yes. Um, didn't share as much. You weren't as aware of what your parents were doing. Um, your parents would be preoccupied with whatever they were doing, whether it was work. Um, their socialising with their friends wouldn't necessarily involve you. You were expected to kind of disappear a little bit while they had drinks or whatever they were doing. Um, And then whatever other things they were doing. Yeah, they just kind of did them um, in in a way. But I think I think a lot of parents now and their kids, they spend a lot more time together. As you say, there is there is this kind of micromanaging of your you know, it's become like another I mean, looking after your kids has become another sort of sort of career yes to some yes. extent where you really you pick and you're co- and parents are constantly thinking oh you've got to do the right things is this yes. the right how do i there's a lot of anxiety about what the best way to bring your kids up how will i make them content happy fulfilled successful should it be this way that way put them on this class send them to that club Sure. And I've seen I've seen the same thing, you know, people calling out each other on Facebook, you know, mothers calling out other mothers for this, that certain things that are good, certain things that are bad. But, in you know, when we were growing up, it, it really wasn't like that. It was just like, OK, we had kids and now the kids are going to do their thing. And, you know, that's there's nothing special about that. There's really nothing yeah. special about kids. They're just kids. Yeah. And um and, and, you and you weren't going to re- rearrange um, our parents didn't rearrange their entire lives around no. us no they did in not the same way. <laughs> they did not and i see people doing that all the time right yeah. that wasn't the case back then you you children were expected to adapt to their parents lives you know mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and uh, 
you know, and stay out of their hair as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and hey, we all way, survived, right? We all we all we survived, all, and <laughs> and I'm actually kind of glad that I had the chance to discover things on my own, my own friends, my own interests, my own things. It's not that my parents didn't encourage me to become an artist or something. I mean, you know, but really that was my discovery. You know. Um, so, you know, it's like, I don't know, there's, there's got to be a happy medium there someplace. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. I think, yeah, I think, I think it builds a different kind of resilience. Um, mm-hmm. the, probably the kind of upbringing that we had yeah. makes you resilient in, in a particular way. I think, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's a side <laughs> issue, but, um, you know, um, I'm uh, not only running out of time, but I'm running out of battery. Sure. Uh, on my laptop. So, you know, I guess we should get close to winding this up, but Simon, uh, before you wrote the peanuts book, you wrote a bunch of other books, uh, about a subject I think that is near and dear to your heart. Yes. You mean star Wars? I think I do mean star Wars. Yeah. Uh, is, is that, I mean, you have written how many books on star Wars? So I've written, I've written quite a few, uh, probably about 15 or 20 or something, but uh, of, of different types. So uh-huh. I was writing a lot of um, books for young readers. So they, they are, you know, they were really an interesting, um, you know, they, because you, you, you have to write for a particular age uh-huh. range, very specific. It was a grade. So I was writing a lot of books in a graded reading, uh, a graded reading scheme. Uh, okay. which meant that, you know, you, you had to write a level one reader for kids who were around, you know, five or six and then a level two for kids who are around six or seven, etc. So you had to be very attentive to how you how you um, what, what words you use, what sentence structures. And with something like Star Wars, it's actually incredibly hard to do that because yeah. just the names themselves like are way beyond the kind of words that a child of that age would ordinarily come across. So if you're just using a, a name like Tata, a planet like Tatooine, you know, that's yeah. not that's not a kind of key key word that kids of six or seven um, right. are learning. But, you know, it's Star Wars. So every kid pretty much knows knows that word once once they can identify it. They know what that means. They know what, you know these names palpatine and skywalker and obi-wan kenobi it's they a tough stuff it. for kids to say even yeah. Know, yeah 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 uh-huh. and, but, did, um, and, and so the the most one of the most fun things i did was a and then i so then i worked on some books which um as i said i i spent some time over at um california in skywalker ranch which was you know at the time where lucasfilm was based the the original and the most amazing you know offices they had in this Skywalker Ranch, um, Incredible. which was tucked into a valley up in hills above um, in Marin County, uh-huh. uh, kind of north of San, of San Francisco, an amazing part of the world, like mil- millionaires territory and, you know, just incredible. And um, I spent a few weeks at a time working there just before some of the prequels were coming out. So I would go over there and we would and literally we, we would be given a rough cut of one of the Star Wars films, oh. yeah, on wow. like v- on VHS, oh uh, and just put in a room, and uh, not really particularly the no no guards on the door or anything like that. Just here you go, here's the film as it is at the moment, and it would be all like you know bits of you know um, 
it wouldn't be finished. The special effects were not in place. There would be snippets of green screen, blue screen, sound effects <laughs> weren't there. Uh, the, the music would often be just a kind of a placeholder piece of soundtrack. So it was fa- like fascinating. But we would then use use what we were given to kind of build these very detailed reference books that for fans who essentially think Star Wars is a real a real um and I'm counting myself one of those people I absolutely love the detail and I love I love the process of in a way just thinking to yourself this is a real place and if it were a real place it would need to be consistent and make sense and so anything that you see in the movies that that on first appearance doesn't seem to be consistent what we would try and do in these books is we would try and uh cleverly work in a kind of way in which that was consistent or that we would rationalize things or explain things so they were like reference books for a place that doesn't really exist but so much fun so i really yeah i really enjoyed yeah. that it i mean thinking it through like that and i'm sure that that kind of material becomes the basis for films that are are later films in the franchise they go back to this material and they can look at it and say ah here's how this works and here's how this civilization is structured or whatnot i mean uh it's kind of cool really to have that basis upon which because you know the star wars franchise is so huge yeah and went on for so long and continues to be so hugely successful and um and intricate because as it goes on it just becomes more and more detailed and more and more uh, fully realized i mean Absolutely. eventually it will become real <laughs> you know yeah yeah self-fulfilling i i hope so <laughs> <laughs> well i don't want to see a real darth vader we've come close enough here in the united states to that no that's true but i wouldn't i wouldn't mind owning a land speeder oh yeah okay <laughs> 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 yeah there's some cool cool technology there yeah. yeah i wouldn't mind a dive into 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 hyperspace oh wow yeah very cool <laughs> very cool yeah see where you could go right in the millennium yeah. South. wonderful well uh, simon this has been wonderful i i am just about out of battery though so i i think i'm before my computer dies on me i think i'd <laughs> i'd better say farewell uh for now sure but this has just been so terrific uh you know there's just so much wonderful to talk about charles schultz and peanuts on the 70th anniversary of the comic strip and to celebrate this wonderful book that you've put together called the peanuts book a visual history of the iconic comic strip from dk publishing it is in bookstores now yeah and i have to say it's a lot of fun whether you're a peanuts fan new or old or you want to share it with your kids or you just want it on your shelf um particularly my a lot of my audience is cartoonists and this is just one of those great things it's a it's a beautiful book it's got generous sampling of both original strips as well as the printed strips as they appeared in in the newspapers and whatnot and uh, some great quotes and some you know wonderful moments here that are identified that will bring back uh, uh to to your mind um you know some of the benchmarks of the comic strip it's really great it's a lot of fun and i really enjoy it a lot i'm glad i've got it on my shelf and i think anybody who loves peanuts would want to have this congratulations on that achievement Simon. thank you jeff thank you so much yeah it's been it's been great having you here and i hope thank you we... so much for having me on the show i've i'm i'm so i'm i've enjoyed it so much 
Oh, I, I'm glad. I hope we have a chance to to meet one day, and if not, uh, to talk again. You know, uh, maybe there'll be a follow up to this book, or if not, um, just stay in touch. It'd be great to I'll keep you posted. Yeah, wonderful. Let me know what All you're right. doing next. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Simon. Um, take care. You too. Okay. Bye. If you are looking for a gift for a Peanuts lover, or if you need a gift for yourself, pick up the Peanuts book, a Visual History of the Iconic Comic Strip by Simon B. Croft, out right now from DK Publishing, and uh, it's hot off the presses. So uh, pick up your copy today. I think you'll enjoy it. So, um, And I hope to have Simon on the show again. That would be really great. He was a wonderful guest. And uh, what else is going on? Nothing much. Just check me out on Instagram at Grogan Jeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. Or if you want to follow my comics, at Spiking the Lens on Instagram, Spiking the Lens. You can also uh, follow me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Check me out there. Just put up a new video that will tell you all about my Patreon page and what you can expect if you become a member of the community there. So check it out. I hope you'll you'll enjoy the video and uh, whatever you can contribute is greatly appreciated. Well, uh, we have peanuts. We have peanuts on the brain. We have we have a Charlie Brown Christmas coming up for free on Apple TV, December 11th through 13th. Don't forget that. So if you don't have Apple TV, which I don't, right? You can still, if you download the app, you can still watch Charlie Brown Christmas. December 11th through 13th for free, which is, I think, you know, that's nice, right, that they they made it available. I mean, it's been available for free for, you know, 50 years, but um, uh, 55 years, right, and 55 years, but uh, now you got to pay, right, now you got to subscribe. That's the way everything is these days. It sucks, but, uh, but, 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 okay, so we do have the chance to watch it for free, December 11th through 13th, so do so. I enjoyed watching The Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown on my iPad, catching up on all that detail, uh, which I couldn't see before. Uh, It was really cool to see what Dean Spill had done with some of the backgrounds and some of the work of the others. Everything was just very much, (laughs) very much in your face, you know, if you're looking at it on on an iPad, it's really uh, right on your lap there. Uh, all of the marks of the crayons and whatnot, you know, whatever was used to draw, they're just like right there on the surface. So I'm looking forward to seeing the same thing in Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, yeah. One thing that came to my mind while Simon and I were talking, I was listening to it later on. And one of the things that hit me was that, um, you know, a Charlie Brown Christmas was sponsored by Coca-Cola back in 65. They And the intro originally had a little ad for Coca-Cola there. And I just thought about the commercialization of Christmas. You know, Coca-Cola uh, was in some ways inadvertently responsible for the mid-late 20th century look of Christmas. Uh, in fact... They hired one of the greatest illustrators, one of the greatest illustrators of the 20th century, Hayden Sunblom, uh, to do their Santa Claus. And Hayden Sunblom's Santa Claus is the Santa Claus. It's it's the the figure who defined Santa Claus, which, by the way, was based on Hayden Sunblom himself. 
uh, the illustrator. He painted him uh, his own portrait as Santa Claus. Well, anyway, um, he became the ubiquitous Santa Claus that you see everywhere. Before, I don't know what Santa Claus looked like before Hayden Sunblom's Santa Claus came along. It wasn't quite as robust or quite as jolly as uh, Sunblom's Santa Claus. Look it up, Hayden Sunblom, uh, and, and look at those images of Santa Claus. They are the epitome of... They define what you imagine Santa Claus should be. Anyway, so Coca-Cola inadvertently, in some ways, partly responsible for this whole commercialization thing of Christmas that a Charlie Brown Christmas is sort of poised against. I don't want to say rails against because it doesn't rail against it, but it's, you know, it's situated against the idea of a commercialized Christmas. Anyway, uh, just a, another little trivial detail that struck me as I was listening to the podcast. Uh, and why not check out Hayden Sunblom anyway, because he was a wonderful illustrator, and uh, there's a light in that Santa Claus that you just don't see from anybody else. He was quite something. If you've never looked at Hayden Sunblom's work, I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. Um, great painter, great illustrator. So that's it for me. Uh, I will see you soon, one way or the other. Um, happy holidays to all of you, wherever you are. I hope you enjoy the most this season, whatever you can enjoy, wherever you are, um, yeah, we got to find joy wherever we can find it in these difficult times. But we will come through it. We will get through it. I know we will. And uh, I'm looking forward to that day, as I'm sure you are too. So, until next time, all i got to say is stay safe, stay healthy. May the loved ones around you be healthy as well. Best wishes of the holiday season to you. And... Uh, Thanks for listening.